Okay, Joel 3, 11 through 21. This is God's word. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. My holy mountain in Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a des- desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are holy, and you are high and lifted up, and Lord God, you are gracious. And Lord God, one way you show your grace to us is you speak to us. You have revealed yourself to us in your word. So Lord God, help us not to take it for granted. Lord God, it is not a small thing that the living God speaks to us. So Lord God, please open our hearts and minds to your word. Lord, everything in this world, everything in our flesh, the enemy is doing whatever he can and the world is doing whatever it can to keep us away from your word. But Father, at this moment, at this time, bring us to your word. Open your word to our minds and our hearts. Sometimes it's just so confusing. It is so hard to understand. It's almost like reading a foreign language. And yet, Lord, Holy Spirit, you can open it up to us. You can make it clear. You could let it bring life. You can, Father God, correct and challenge and build up through your word. So Lord, I pray that will happen today. So Lord God, thank you so much. Father, we want to be a people who know your word. We want to open ourselves to you. Speak to us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, praise the Lord. You guys did it. Praise God. You made it to the very end of the book of Joel. So you're thinking, I just showed up here today. (laughs) Well, you too. But praise God. We finally came to the very end of this book. And like a conductor of an orchestra, Joel, he really is a master maestro, but he brought his message to this crescendo in the final chapter in this kind of masterful way. But in the final chapter, Joel gathers different notes from earlier in the book, and then he brings them all together into this kind of big climax. And what Joel is doing is he's going back to the theme of the day of the Lord, so throughout this series, we kind of touched on this here and there, but the, th- the day of the Lord is a very big theme. Well, in the final chapter, he's revisiting that. He's coming back to that. Except everything is bigger, is more detailed, is more final. So for example, we see again the cosmic signs of the sun and moon and stars going dark. We saw that earlier in the book a few times. Well, he brings that back. The day of the Lord is going to be a cosmic time, a cosmic change. We see again God's judgment on the unbelieving nations. So we're going to talk a lot about that today, but it's much bigger. We see again God's blessings upon Israel. We're going to see that again today, but it's greater, it's sweeter. We see again the land being renewed, except this time is not only restored, it's completely transformed. So earlier in chapter 2, Joel said the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will be full of wine. Why was that so precious? Because locusts had come and decimated the land, right? They were in a total famine. They were going to die. And yet God said, I will bring abundance again. So we saw that in chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, the entire land is even more than that, right? Now it's flowing with new wine. The whole land is flowing. And the hills will be flowing with milk. There will be living rivers streaming throughout the land. So the entire land has been transformed. So it's not just, oh, bad things happen, I'm going to restore that. God went beyond that. It's going to be transformed. 
In chapter 3, we see again God's temple. So Joel mentioned this in the beginning of the book. It was desolate. The worship came to a grinding halt because there were no more crops to offer to God, no more worship. So it went from desolate to now being filled with God's presence. So we saw that in chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, Joel takes it a step further. The temple has become what? A source of life with a river of life flowing out from it. So do you see that? Everything Joel talked about in chapter 2 now is even more, is bigger, is more glorious in chapter 3, including the judgments. And then finally, we see again Zion. So Zion is just a special name in the Bible for Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of David. And earlier in chapter 2, Joel said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and escapes judgment, they're going to be in Zion. Okay, everybody who belongs to me, they're going to be in Zion. That was just one verse in chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, we get many verses. And Zion itself seems to be transformed. And this is what God says. This is going to be the final destination for God's people. So if you believe in Jesus and you're sitting here today, you're like, what are we talking about, Zion? Well, you're going to know very clearly what that is because you will be there. You will be there as your final dwelling place one day. It is God's holy mountain where God dwells and only the righteous will enter in. So what am I saying? In chapter 3, everything that he talked about in the past is being brought in again, is revisited, but is bigger, is bolder, is more glorious, and is more terrible. So Joel revisits the theme of the day of the Lord, and all the blessings and judgments connected to it are brought back, except, like I said, everything is bigger, more detailed, more final. So then here's the big question that we should ask. Why does Joel end this message to a suffering people like that? Because this message was to a people who were facing famine. They were in a crisis in their life. And I don't know about you, but if I'm going through hard things in my life, and then a spiritual leader shows up and says, Hey, Roy, I have something to tell you. The day of the Lord is coming. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be bold. But there's terrible judgment coming too. I'd be like, uh, thank you, but I need to hear something else, right? Why, why would he say this? Why would this be the close to his message to a hurting people? Because remember, Joel was not just speaking to anybody, but he was talking to his own people who were facing famine and death. Billions of locusts had come upon their land and eaten up all their crops. Their economy was ruined. Their future was ruined. And this crisis, by the way, was a result of their rebellion and sin against God. And then Joel went even further. He said that crisis is actually a sign pointing to an even greater crisis that will come Israel if you don't repent. A northern army will come and invade your land, our land, if you don't repent and turn back to God. So this was his message, right? This is what we've heard all along. His people were suffering. God sent Joel to give this message. So then why would he end his message like this? With this climactic chapter on the final day of the Lord. Well, we can't say for sure why he ended it like this. We don't know his mind, right? We can't read his mind. But there are similar teachings in other parts of the Bible that show us maybe the answer. Why would God bring this up for us to hear when we're in a crisis, when we're suffering? Well, I think this might be one reason. It's because knowing the final destination of your life can produce great power to affect the way you live in the present. If you know where your life is headed, the final destination, where all this is going, then that'll produce some change in the present, right? It'll produce great power, in fact, to live a certain kind of way. And the Bible is very clear on this. But human history and life on planet Earth has a final destination. We need to be absolutely clear. There is a final destination. And this is not something that's just kind of known everywhere. This is not floating around in different places. No, this is a totally unique teaching of the Bible. Any other worldview, any other religion that might have a similar view, they just took it from the Bible. So for example, Islam, Mormonism, they have a similar view. There's a final destination. They just took that from the Bible. And no other view sees human history and life on planet Earth in that way. No other view. So for example, the naturalistic worldview. Maybe you have friends, family members who are out there, they don't believe in God, they believe in science, they put their faith in technology. I mean, they have a naturalistic worldview. But they all they see is the physical universe around them. 
Well, this view does not see human history and life on earth as having any kind of final destination. This view believes that the physical universe is all there is. And the physical universe has no purpose, right? There is no rhyme, there's no reason ultimately. Yes, you can find some kind of meaning in your own life, you're gonna figure something out and live for that. But ultimately though, if you were to sit in a room and really think about it, there's no reason why you're here, there's no reason that the universe even exists. The universe has no purpose in mind. It is just matter and energy. And human beings are the product of this purposeless universe. You know, I remember one time watching this interview. I forgot with who. I think it was Elon Musk. But this interviewer asked Elon, or this person, can't say for sure. But the interviewer asked this person, why do you think people want to go to Mars? And he said, well, I think this is just the next step in humanity's history, right? This is the next thing we need to do. And then the interviewer said, well, what happens after we get to Mars and settle Mars? And, he, and the, inter- the person said, well, we'll just go to another planet and settle that planet. And then the interviewer said, well, then what happens after that? Well, we'll just go to another planet and settle that planet. And we're just going to kind of expand out into the universe. And when I heard that, I'll be honest with you. When I saw, heard that vision, I said, that is one of the emptiest things I've ever heard. Right? Human beings just kind of adrift in the universe kind of like on an ocean, a raft in the middle of the ocean, just drifting from this to that. No direction, no purpose in particular. So that person's vision of humanity is very common. I mean, that's the vision out there. And the image I get is kind of like orphan kids all on their own, no one to guide them, no one to help them. They're just living in one city, then they go to another city, and they're just drifting from city to city, sometimes just to survive, other times just to be on an adventure. But there's no reason, right? There's no purpose, there's no real destination. Well, that's the naturalistic worldview. Well, here's another worldview, the animistic worldview. A lot of the neo-pagan, you know, new age people, they have this view. But this view sees everything in the universe as one. So rocks, mountains, plants, animals, even human beings, we all share the same spiritual force, right? The same spiritual essence. We're all one. There's no distinction between the physical world, the spiritual world. And again, a lot of New Age people have this view. And this view also has no final destination for human beings, for life on earth. Why? Because they believe that the spiritual essence in everything has always been here. It has always just been the same. It's existed in the past. It's existing right now. It'll exist in the future. It doesn't change. So it's this kind of static view of the universe, right? Again, there's no real purpose or meaning. I mean, they'll acknowledge history. They'll acknowledge, you know, the need for meaning in your own life. But overall, though, I mean, everything's just the same. We're all one. There's no difference. So that's another view. And then finally, here's another very, very common view out there. Again, maybe some of your friends, your relatives have this view. Maybe you talked about it over Thanksgiving. But there's the Eastern worldview. A lot of religions like Buddhism, Hinduism in the East have this view. But they see human history as a circle. It's circular. But human history and life on earth goes in a circle. So yes, they would acknowledge that a person's life seems to flow in a linear direction. So yeah, you're born, you die, there seems to be a direction. But overall though, in an ultimate sense, it goes in a circle. Because after you die, the life force within, this is what they believe, reincarnates. You probably heard of that. So you reincarnate, and then there's this continuous cycle of life, death, and reincarnation. And a person needs to journey through many cycles of this if they're going to eventually get united to this kind of greater life force, and that's the goal. So their view of human history, life on earth, is circular. So do you see this? It's just totally unusual that the Bible sees human history and our lives as linear, going one direction. So whether you're adrift in the universe, going from one thing to the next with no purpose, or if you're one with the universe, stuck in this kind of static state, or you're continuously cycling through different circular states of reincarnation, there's no final destination. That's the point, right? What, what is your ultimate purpose? Why are you here? Okay, what is your meaning in life? Well, when you turn to the Bible, it's totally different, like I said. But that is not the view of Scripture. But in the Bible, there is a beginning and there is an end to the sweep of human history. See, God's hand with great purpose is guiding all the events in your life, in my life, all around us, throughout history, is guiding everything to his end. That's the view of scripture. You know, I like what R.C. Sproul used to say. He already passed away, but he said, there is not one loose molecule in the universe. 
If that's the Bible's teaching. Not one loose molecule in the universe. But everything is under the sovereign guidance of a wise, good, and just God. So to put it simply, this is what the Bible says about our lives and about history. It's not a circle. It's not a dot. It's not a random zigzag. But it's an arrow. It's a line that is headed somewhere. Right? It's an arrow. So the Bible says human history is an arrow and it's headed somewhere. So then, so what, right? Why, why are we talking about this? How does this affect our lives here and now? In every way imaginable. Every way imaginable. Because if human history is an arrow with a start and a finish that God has determined, and your life is headed somewhere, because your life is a part of this history, then you know what this means? This means everything in your life at this moment carries with it the greatest significance imaginable. Everything. Your work, your family, your free time, your relationships, what you do every morning, what you do before you go to bed, everything you can imagine has eternal significance. Jesus, in fact, said not even one loose word you speak will have insignificance. He said in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every little loose word you say, Jesus says, has eternal significance. You're going to be judged on that. You're going to be held accountable. So every second of every minute of our lives carries within it the weight of eternity. Okay, what I mean by that is what we do minute by minute, second by second, day by day in our lives directly affects our eternity. Okay, this is the Bible's clear teaching. Again, why? Because human history in our lives is an arrow. It's directly headed somewhere. And that destination is not unclear, as we're going to see. So the more you think about that, the more it becomes this profound, tremendous thing upon you, right? I mean, what a burden. Who can bear it? Well, here's the good news. Jesus can bear it, and he did bear it through his life, death, and resurrection. And we'll come back to that at the end. But this is an incredible, weighty, significant thing in our lives, right? That our lives actually have tremendous purpose, and it's an arrow. It's headed somewhere. And when you look at scripture, especially our chapter today in Joel 3, there are only two destinations for this arrow, only two. But Joel calls one destination the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Judgment. And the other destination is the Mount of Zion, the Mount of Zion. And all of humanity is going to end up in one place or the other. That's it. There's a very clear destination where everything is headed. It's going to be either one or the other. So let's briefly look at both of these. But first, the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Judgment. This is one of the destinations. So God says in Joel 3, 12, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, the valley of Jehoshaphat in Joel 3 could be an actual place within Israel. Okay, no one is sure. We don't know exactly what Joel meant for sure, but it could be an actual place. Many, many Bible scholars identify the valley of Jehoshaphat with this famous valley. It's between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south, but it's just right there in the middle. And it goes kind of sideways from west to east. It goes all the way from Mount Carmel along the coast. That was the mountain, by the way, where Elijah fought the false prophets. But it's from Mount Carmel all the way inland to the Jordan River. But a lot of Bible scholars say maybe that's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. There were a lot of historical battles that were fought there. And some Bible scholars also believe this is the place where the Battle of Armageddon will take place in Revelation 16. So this is a very important valley. This is what a lot of Bible scholars believe Joel is talking about. But we can't know for sure if this is the location. So other Bible scholars, they believe the Valley of Jehoshaphat is more likely a symbolic name. Okay, this has nothing to do with King Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament. It has nothing to do with him. It's just called the Valley of Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat literally means God is judge. So it just simply means it's a symbolic name. It just means this is the place where God will judge all the nations. So that's what they say. It's just symbolic. So wherever that place is, it might be in heaven, it might be down here on earth, wherever that is, it's just a place where God will judge all the nations. Jehoshaphat means God is judge. So it is the place of judgment. So Joel says wherever it is, and he himself probably wasn't clear, but wherever that location is, there is a place that God has designated where he will judge the world. He will judge all the nations. 
And regardless of wherever that is, the first thing that Joel says about God's judgment day is it is a day of appointment. Right? It is a day of appointment. But this is what's so strange about this appointment with God. But it kind of sounds like it's an appointment to fight God. So if you were to go back into our passage and read through that again, see, I want you to understand your Bible. If you were to ever go back and read this again, I want you to understand what's happening here. But, but it kind of sounds like this is an appointment with God, but it's an appointment to fight him. So it's kind of weird, right? Almost as if they're coming up to fight God in a battle. So Joel said in Joel 3.11, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. So it almost sounds like there's a battle about to happen. A few verses earlier in Joel 3, God told the nations, Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up here to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It almost sounds like God's inviting a fight. Come and fight me. That's what it sounds like. So this is very strange. The nations have an appointment with God, but to fight him? But then when you read on, you realize, oh, this isn't an actual call to war because there is no war. There's no war at all. But what God is doing is he's taunting them. He's taunting them. But he's basically saying, all you nations, all of you in the world, throughout the world who are in rebellion against me, all of you who are making plans to fight me, come up here. This is what God is saying. Come on up. You, you want to rebel? You want to fight me? You want to disobey? You want to throw off my commands? Then come. Come, fight me. Come to the valley of Jehoshaphat with your swords and shields. Dress for battle. Come up here. But then God says immediately after, but you won't find a battle up here. There won't be any war. What you're going to find is judgment. So you don't want me? You rebel against me? Then come, fight. But then when they come, they're just going to be judged. And so God says in verse 12, let the nations stir themselves up, in other words, for battle, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. But for there, I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Do you see that? So he's taunting them. He's not actually about to fight them. God's like, it doesn't matter what you guys plan to do, how much you rebel, you will be judged. So God's call for all the nations to come and fight them was really a call for them to come and be judged. And where else have we seen this in the Old Testament? This sounds almost exactly like Psalm 2, 1 through 6. But God said in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why are they fighting each other and fighting me and doing whatever they want? It's all in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. They're planning against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And how many people are like that in the world today? Oh, all this old tradition, you know, patriarchal, you know, outdated stuff from the Bible. I mean, who cares about all that? Just cast it all off. Okay, we don't want that. We don't even believe in a God. In fact, God is dead. So this is what this is talking about. Let us burst their bonds, cast away their commands and their cords. And yet, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, yeah, you guys say all this, you fight against me, rebel against me, but I know what's going to happen. You will be judged. And I've placed my judge on my mountain, Zion. And who is that? It's his son. If you read on, it's his son. He will judge you. And so in these passages, there's this judgment that is coming upon the nations and it's unavoidable. See, that's the point of Joel. It's unavoidable. It's an appointment you can't avoid. So regardless of how much the nations try to throw off God's commands, how much people out there try to do their own thing, no matter how much they rebel against God, they try to fight God even, they try to ignore God, run away from God, God says, I have an appointment with you and it's unavoidable. The nations will be judged. They will be judged. And what we read in scripture is not only just the nations as kind of this generic group of people, but individuals, down to the individual. It says Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man and woman to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, there's an appointment. We all have an appointment with God. And it will be as real, in fact, even more real than this very day right here, sitting here. It will be an appointment we have to keep. 
So in the same way, people can fight God, they can run away from God, they can ignore God. They can do whatever they want, right? They can just completely dismiss what God says in his word, and yet all roads in their life will lead straight to God's judgment. This is the teaching of Joel. Again, it is an unavoidable appointment. Hebrews 9, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But that's not all. But God's judgment is also a day of terror. So this is what we also see in Joel 3. It is a day of terror. Look at Joel 3.13. It says, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow. And up until that point, it sounds so good. It's like, yeah, you talked about that, Joel. The wine press is so full. There's going to be flowing wine and the harvest is full. But hold on. He's using that imagery that was good in the past before to something terrible now. He says, for their evil is great. So what is Joel saying here? Well, Joel, he takes this wonderful image from the previous chapters of flowing uh, wine and ripe harvest, and now he uses it for something terrible, which is God's judgment. This is God's judgment on the wicked and the unrighteous. But Joel here uses this imagery that comes up more than once in the Old Testament. But God says, on the day of judgment, His judgment on the wicked and the unrighteous are going to be like a man who puts grapes into a wine press and begins to stomp on them. And he stomps on these grapes until his feet become red, soaked in red. And he says that's exactly how it'll be when God judges the wicked. It'll be like a man stomping on grapes until his feet are soaked red. If you look in Isaiah 63, 2 through 4, that's exactly the same image. And by the way, People would go, oh, I don't like that. Why do, you, why do you even talk about that in church, right? That is not the God that I believe in. That's the unpopular Old Testament God. Well, hold on there. <laughs> because when you read all of Scripture, this is in fact who? Who is doing the stomping here? Who's going to stomp on the wicked until his feet turn red? It's Jesus. Because in Revelation 19.15, this is clearly talking about Jesus. It says, from his mouth, Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fear wrath of God, the Almighty. See, same image. When Jesus returns to judge the nations, he will be the one to stomp on everyone like grapes until his feet and his cloak are stained red. That's what it says. So what, what does this mean? Jesus is both Savior and Judge. This is such an important point, and what I just said right there are gonna, is going to be increasingly, increasingly controversial in our world. It's already controversial here, maybe with some of you. You don't want to hear that. And there are entire churches and denominations that resist that. But this is just the clearest teaching of Scripture. But every time the apostles preached the gospel to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, they always mentioned Jesus as what? Savior and judge. It is crystal clear. When Paul went to, I'm sorry, Peter went to the house of Cornelius, a Roman, in Acts 10. He was preaching the gospel. It was a beautiful message of God's grace. And then what did he say? Verse 42. And Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Peter made it very clear. Jesus is a beautiful savior, but he's also the judge. He will judge. Paul said the same thing when he preached to the Athenians. These are Greeks, pagan Greeks in Acts 17. But he said, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Same language. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, same thing. Jesus is Savior and Judge. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, I mean, it is so controversial now. I can't even imagine in five years' time, ten years' time, how people are going to react to this simple message that was all along in Scripture that Jesus is Savior and Judge. Do you know that Jesus himself said things that are, that are just unbelievably controversial that people never seem to talk about these days? But for example, in Luke 20, verse 18, Jesus himself said, I am the cornerstone. And then he said, all of humanity only will have two ways of responding to me, the cornerstone. There's only two ways you're going to relate to me. He said, one way is you're going to fall upon me and be broken into pieces. And the other way is the cornerstone will fall on you and you will be crushed. What? Say that again? (laughs) This is the meek and mild Jesus. But he said radically controversial things. 
No human being alive ever said these words. No wonder they put him to death. But he said, all of humanity, there's only two ways you can relate to me. You will fall upon me and be broken, meaning you're going to be humbled and receive me as Savior, or you're going to resist me until the day of judgment and you will be crushed, utterly crushed. And so Jesus himself had this view of both Savior and judge. He is a Savior and judge. So this is clearly the view of the destination everyone is headed. But we have an appointment with Jesus. And this is the biblical view of Jesus, which the majority of the world does not have. Even many churches, entire denominations do not have. And so they are worshiping a false Jesus. And this is what we see all around us. It might be a Jesus who's more like a boyfriend. Okay, how many of you guys know a boyfriend Jesus? A lot of people, I remember when I was in youth group, there were girls, you know, precious sisters in that group who, you know, they're my sisters, and yet their view of Jesus was basically he was their boyfriend. Like, they love Jesus, but Jesus the boyfriend. Other people, they have Jesus the Santa Claus. Oh, gosh, yeah, I believe in Jesus because whenever I'm in trouble, I pray, and then he will give me things that I need. And yes, he does that. But this is the only view they have. And so this concept of Jesus as both Savior and Judge is nowhere near anything they can imagine. And so they are worshiping a false Jesus. And anyone who worships a false Jesus does not have eternal life. So this is the view that we see in the book of Joel. This is the destination we're headed towards. You have an appointment with Jesus. He is the Savior, but he is also the judge. And so Jesus must judge sin. It is in his character to judge sin. He cannot not judge sin. This is why he is both Savior and he is judge. It's because of who he is. So in his character, because he is so loving and he is so gracious, he has provided a way for us to be saved. But because he is so righteous and so holy, he must judge sin. And what is sin? Sin sin is anything that veers from a standard. So if you were to imagine a straight iron rod and you put up a crooked stick, it kind of veers away from it, right? At any point it veers away, that is sin. And so who is that rod in scripture? It's Jesus. He is the iron rod. And then who's the crooked stick? It's us. And at any point we veer away, that is sin. And Jesus says, that sin must be judged. It must be judged. And by the way, is this just a few people? Is it just those really, really bad people out there? Well, no, this is the next point. But Joel makes it clear. It is a day of multitudes. It is a day of multitudes. So look at verse 14. Joel said, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. And by the way, this is not our decision, like, oh yeah, I'm going to decide whether to be judged or not. This is God's decision. God will decide, what am I going to do with you? All you nations in rebellion to me, all you sinners who are unrepentant, what will I do with you? It is his decision. And God says, multitudes, multitudes will be in that valley. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. So this is another very unpopular teaching nowadays. So many churches, even denominations, imagine that there are only a very few people, if there is a judgment, we're not even sure about that, but even if there is, only very few people will be judged. Hitler, for sure, Jeffrey Dahmer, maybe the guy who started ISIS, that terror network. So for sure, yeah, people like that. But me? Any of us here in church? No, no. And yet the Bible repeatedly warns the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment for multitudes and multitudes. In fact, Jesus himself, Jesus said things more clearly than anyone, but he himself said, the broad, broad is the road to destruction and many are on it. Narrow is the path to eternal life and few find it, very few find it. So this is the clear teaching all throughout scripture and Joel is no different. There is a destination we're headed. There is an arrow. Our life is an arrow and it's going. It's going somewhere. And this is one destination. And for many people, especially these days, this is a very hard topic to hear, to be sure. It's very hard. But the Bible's teaching on God's judgment upon sinners is clear, is consistent, is repetitive. And so in my mind, it's utterly immoral to hide it from people. You, you just can't, in a good conscience, not mention this or hide it from people because the Bible repeatedly brings it up in the clearest, most dramatic terms. There is a judgment day coming. And even at the human level, even as people cringe to hear this, if you were to just sit again and think about it for a while, it makes sense why this is necessary. 
It makes perfect sense why if there is a perfectly good and holy and just and loving God, why he must have a terrible day of judgment upon the wicked. It should make perfect sense, even in a human understanding. And so what am I talking about? Well, first of all, there's no love without hatred for the things that go against love, right? Do you believe in love? I do. Well, if you believe in love, then there can't be love unless there's hatred also for things that go against love. So for example, if you're a parent and, if you, have, and you have a child, you love that child, of course. I have three beautiful children. And God forbid, but if that child was violated by someone in the most unimaginable way, and then you find out about that, and then you're just kind of like, uh, life happens, and you just kind of overlook it, then what, what does that mean? What does that reveal? And by the way, that's the sad story of so many kids who are abused. But the adults around them, they just kind of overlook it. Right? They keep it a secret. Well, what does that mean then? Well, it means that that person who overlooks it has absolutely no love in their heart. In fact, it's worse than that. It means the exact opposite. They are wicked in their hearts. I can imagine anyone more wicked than that. They are utterly wicked, even though they themselves did nothing. That's the point. They did nothing. They're absolutely wicked. Why? Because love demands that you hate certain things. You must have justice for wickedness. Love demands it. But some of you guys are going, oh, no, no, but wait, forgiveness, right? We got to forgive. Christianity is all about forgiveness. What about forgiveness? Well, again, if you were to sit in a room and think about it, well, even forgiveness without judgment or accountability is meaningless. It's meaningless. So imagine if you lived in a country ruled by a dictator and the dictator came one day and because he's a dictator, he does what dictators do. He kills your entire family in front of you. Somehow you escape and then later through a lot, a lot of turmoil and hardship, you somehow manage to get to the point of forgiving this dictator. And so you stand before him and you say, you killed my entire family, but I forgive you. You know what that dictator is going to say to you? Forgive me for what? Forgive me for what? Your forgiveness is meaningless. Why? Because he's thinking in his mind, I did nothing wrong. (laughs) Right? I broke no laws. I'm above the law. I write the laws. Forgive me for what? Your forgiveness of him is utterly meaningless. It means nothing to him. And again, why? Because there's no judgment upon what he did. But now, if somebody killed your entire family, and this person is in handcuffs in a courtroom, about to get the death sentence... And then you go to him and say, you know what? You're about to face judgment for what you did, but I forgive you. I forgive you. Then what does that mean to that person? Hopefully the world. The world, right? It means everything to that person. Why? Because it's the judgment, the accountability for wickedness that brings meaning to forgiveness. Without it, there's, no, there's not even any meaning. Forgive me for what? Right? Forgiveness is meaningless. Finally, there's no salvation without judgment. We love Jesus. Oh, the Savior, you saved me. From what? From what? Toe fungus, (laughs) right? A bad day? I I mean, what'd you save me from? There is no purpose or meaning behind salvation without judgment. In the same way, forgiveness is meaningless without judgment. Salvation is equally meaningless without judgment. Without judgment, it becomes hard to even know why Jesus died on the cross. And there are many churches today, entire denominations, who do deny that Jesus died on the cross to pay for God's wrath. They deny that. No, he didn't pay for any judgment. Well, then why did Jesus die on the cross? And their answer is, well, he died as a good example for all of us so that we should follow that. And again, if you were to think about that, it's like, really? For Jesus to die on the cross meant that he was falsely accused, he was betrayed by his closest friends, he was tortured, he died a horrific death, utterly alone, In the eyes of everyone who knew him, he was an utter failure. He completely failed at everything he set out to do. And that's our example? We should live like that? That's my goal in life. (laughs) To be falsely accused, tortured, betrayed by all my closest friends, and be an utter failure and die. That's the example, really? Well, if that is, it's very hard to imagine how that in any way could be a positive example for me to follow. So again, that, that just makes no sense. So without judgment, salvation is rendered meaningless. So I could go on and on, right? I mean, there are many more, but for the sake of time, you get the picture. 
So the day of judgment is a clear teaching in scripture that is so important that the moment you take it out, so many of the things that we praise God for and that we worship God for, it just falls to the ground. It becomes meaningless. So this day is coming. This is where the arrow of human history and the arrow of our lives is headed. It is a day of appointment, unavoidable. It is a day of terror for the unrighteous and the sinner. It is a day of multitudes. Many, many will be judged on that day. And this is unavoidable, brothers and sisters. This is where everything is headed. But if it ended there, then that would be a very, very sad ending to the book of Joel. (laughs) But praise God, like I've been saying, Joel is a gospel preacher and it does not end there. But there is a radically different destination that Joel preaches, which is there is the Mount of Zion, the Mount of Zion. And for the sake of time, let me just run through this more quickly because I think this is more familiar to us. But first, it is a day of salvation. On this Mount of Zion, you will find salvation. Look at Joel 3.16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So here it says that God is a terrifying lion. He will roar his judgment upon the nations, but that same God In the span of just two verses, it just switches and says, but to his people, he is a refuge. He's a refuge. And so the same God that is a terror upon sinners, he is a refuge upon his own people. And again, Jesus said it best, but he gave this beautiful imagery of a hen reaching out to cover his people with his wings. He's like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how much I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. So that's the picture here, that the same judge upon the wicked is our refuge. And here, Joel makes it very clear that this refuge, this salvation, is only for who? The people of Israel. It is only for those who are part of God's covenant. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, we know that we are also a part of Israel. It's not just ethnic Israel, but it's also those who are grafted in. We are spiritual Israel, the church. So that's it. Salvation is found in Israel and Israel alone. And the same God who terrorizes the wicked, he will be a salvation and a refuge for his people. But not only that, it is a day of holiness. It is a day of holiness. Look at verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never again pass through it. Only the righteous will enter. So this is a place of holiness where all the things that you are just so frustrated by, that you are just brokenhearted over, all the things that just make this world not a place that we enjoy. How many times have you read on a YouTube comment, I'm just done with this world, right? I just read that all the time. Some terrible news comes out this past week. My family and I were all eating dinner, and then this news just came up. We couldn't stop it. We couldn't turn it off in time. My children all heard it. But a little seven-year-old girl was kidnapped by a FedEx driver delivering a package. She opened the door, he kidnapped her, and then he killed her. And so that just happened a few days ago. And then you read the comments under the video, I'm done with this world. I'm so sick of this world. This is the sin we're talking about. This is a daily occurrence in this world. Imagine a holy God looking at everything happening all the time, every minute. Can you imagine that? I remember, I don't know why, I watch weird documentaries sometimes. Um, don't hold that against me, but I was watching this one documentary of people who have this job, it's a tech job, where their job all day long for hours is to sit in a dark room and they watch videos online and they are the human filter. Anything that is not appropriate for consumption by the public, they need to identify that video and delete it. And so imagine, if they are the human filter, imagine the things they see. And there was this one young Filipino woman in her 20s and she had this job and they were interviewing her and and she said, yeah, I mean, it is one of the most stressful things that I do. It is so stressful. And she was saying, I just see unimaginable things that is uploaded. You know, people committing suicide, people doing terrible things to others on video. And this is what she sees, just a sliver of that. Imagine God and what he sees. So this is the sin in the world that we're talking about. And Joel says, a day is coming, all of it is gone. All of it is gone. 
So it says here, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. How? Because you are going to live with me in my holy mountain, and this place shall be holy, and only the righteous will enter in. It is a holy place. All of that is gone. No more sin. All of it is done, put away. And even some of us here are going to be there, praise God. You know, I like what this one pastor said, but he said, you know what, I'm going to have a hard time recognizing some of you in heaven because <laughs> we're going to be holy. And what he meant is you're so not holy here. It's going to be hard to recognize one another. But even some of us here, we're going to be there. But it is a holy place. This is where we're headed, brothers and sisters. But not only that, it is going to be a place of new life. It is a day of new life. Look at verse 18. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. And so here, I mentioned earlier that this is going to be a radical transformation of the promised land, but it's more than that. But this is an end-time picture of heaven and the new earth. But this is where we're going to be dwelling forever and ever. But it is a whole new life. This is the final state. So we're wrapping it up soon, but what, it, what is this? Well, this is the beautiful, beautiful destination that every believer in Christ is headed towards. This is where we're headed. You know, this is the practical, kind of tangible picture I have of what heaven will be like. You know, God gave us an imagination. We should use it. But I remember uh, one time long ago in college ministry, I was working with this one sister, and in her home country, she was from Singapore, but she said her church back home had this thing called the love feast, this love feast where believers in the church were called to this big banquet and they would all eat together and just love on each other and give gifts to each other. And it was a love feast. They would hear a teaching from the word of God and pray for each other. And so when I heard that, I'm like, you know what? That is a perfect picture of what it'll be like in heaven. You know, the other day, my wife and I, we love Saturday morning breakfast. Uh, we have it with our family, but she and I sometimes kind of separate ourselves and enjoy it together. But Saturday morning breakfast, to me, is like a little sliver of heaven, right? It's a picture of heaven but the sun is shining, right? It's a brand new day, right? It just feels fresh. You have your coffee, you have a little omelet. <laughs> You're just enjoying it with somebody you love. And that is the picture of heaven here. Imagine a place where you are gonna sit down and only people who love you from the heart, who have a pure heart towards you, they are sitting down with you to enjoy a banquet with you. That's the picture here. It is going to be a day of salvation, a day of holiness, no more unrighteousness, no more of the sin that terrorizes the world. It is a day where everything is new. It's going to be a love feast. So this is the destination, brothers and sisters. It's either going to be a day of judgment, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or it's going to be the Mount of Zion. And why is it so important that Joel ended his message like this? Because if you are able to just wrap your head around the reality of these two things, that there is a destination, my life is headed to one or the other, then it's going to change, right? It's going to profoundly affect the way we live here. That is the teaching of Scripture. It will affect the way you live day to day here. So one way it will change your perspective is it will give you perseverance. So imagine taking a class and there's no purpose to that class. There's no destination, there's no end time, there's no final, no midterms. I mean, the moment things get tough in the class, are you going to persevere? No. Like, why am I even doing this? Why am I even here? And yet, if there is a reason why, if there's a destination, you will persevere. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says, I'm going to get through all this trial in my life. Why? Because there's a destination. I'm headed somewhere. But not only that, but Paul says he's able to press on and forget what's behind you know, yesterday I had a wonderful meeting with a couple and we were talking about this. That the very person who has so much baggage in his past is the one who wrote this. But it's Paul who actually killed Christians in his past life. But he was a killer of Christians and then he got converted. And then he said in Philippians 3.13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Meaning this calling, this prize. I haven't gotten it. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think the same way. So Paul is saying, I forget what's behind, I press on, I persevere, I will get to the goal. Why? Because I know where it's headed. 
I know where it's headed. But as we come to a close, there's one even greater reason why we should know this destination. And for me, the greatest reason why I should know where my life is headed is because if I live with a clear understanding of the tension between the Valley of Judgment and Mount Zion with their salvation, if I understand the clear tension of living between these two destinations, then you know what happens? I get driven to be with Jesus, my Savior. I get driven to be with him. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you were to really understand that there is a judgment coming and no one will escape, right? Multitudes upon multitudes will be there. Jesus must judge sin. There's only two ways you're going to respond to Jesus, either a savior or judge. You're either going to fall upon him and be broken or you're going to be crushed by him. If you know that, and you know that there is another way out. If there is another salvation that he's offering, then what's going to happen? You're going to utterly be driven to him every single day. You know, if you were to ever do discipleship in our church, you're going to go through this book. We call it the Green Book. But in that book, it talks about how there's a diverging path that increases in a believer's life. But before you're a Christian, you think everything's the same. But the moment you become saved, things start to diverge. And what that's talking about is one path begins to show you more and more God's holiness and how you fall short. But the other path begins to show you more and more your sinfulness. More and more your sinfulness. So you begin to see God's holiness and you begin to see your holiness and there's a diverging path. And so the deeper you walk with God, the more you know him, the more you read the Bible, you're going to start feeling this tension. See, it's the same tension between the Valley of Judgment and Mount Zion. You're going to feel that. And then what's the only way you, you could bridge it? Some of you guys know the answer. What's the only way? Jesus, amen, is Jesus. The only way you're gonna bridge that tension is Jesus. So you're driven to him day after day, day after day. So I can't think of a better way to end this series than to preach the gospel. Be driven to Jesus, amen? Be driven to your savior, the more you think about the realities of heaven and earth, of judgment and salvation, of the valley of judgment and Mount Zion, be driven to be with your Savior. Okay, this is what Joel wanted. Okay, this is what he preached to his people. Amen? Okay, let's bow our heads. Let's just come before him. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord. And Father God, I was a little hesitant, Father, to end this wonderful series on a very difficult note. But Lord God, who am I to try to improve on your message? Who am I to leave something out that you clearly emphasized? And Lord, what you said in your word through your prophet Joel is your life is headed somewhere. There's a clear destination we are all headed somewhere. And so, Lord God, you wanted us to know that. It's either going to be the valley of judgment or it's going to be the city of God and the salvation we'll find there. And Lord Jesus, I pray and ask, oh God, that you will please, please bring these realities into our hearts. Make them so real to us, Lord. Help us to begin to live in that tension, between this tension. And I believe that is what tra changes us. That is what transforms us. So Lord God, we thank you so much, Father. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. In your name we pray, amen.